Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Welcome back to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. This is the co-host of the podcast, Alexis, back in the host chair for a solo journey. So uh, hopefully not going to be too, too long because I'm I'm flying solo in the what if machine today. But we're going to go back to World War II uh, Europe. Uh, we're going to make a brief stop in my favorite uh, country, as you can probably imagine. But we're mainly going to be focusing on Germany today and the impact of what if the Enigma code had not been cracked and the ramifications of Enigma not being cracked in the outcome of World War II. So I hope you join me after our brief little break. We're going to have to hear from one of the people that makes the podcast possible for us. And you'll come back and you'll join me for this solo what if journey on what if the Enigma code had not been cracked and that are, that implica- the implications of that on World War II and its outcomes. See you after the break. Alexis here is taking a little break from the podcast with... With me, with Stan. <laughs> and we want to tell you a little bit about the site we actually use to host our podcast, and that would be Buzzsprout. So what are some of the features that you really, really like about Buzzsprout, Dad? One of the things that I, and I do most of the editing and posting, so I probably interact with it far more than Alexis did. One of the things I like about it is easy to use. It's point and click. The interface is really straightforward and clean. Uh, so it's easy to know once you've got a file, what you do, how you get it uploaded, all the various things that you would do, scheduling. the Just the mechanics, I, I find pretty simple to use. So I think uh, I think that's something pretty te- technically savvy, but I don't think you have to be technically savvy in order to be able to do. Buzzsprout has a lot of wonderful tutorials as where I'm, well, I've used on that about equipment and how to do things and other things like that. So that's one of the things I like. They make it easy. I think they're they're relatively inexpensive. Uh, you can easily get your podcast started uh, for a low initial investment, and then as it grows, be able to do some additional things with it. And I like it. Uh, we've talked about this a number of times because of the stats and the feedback and the other things that they do that allow us to understand not only how many listeners and how many downloads, but where those listeners are. We can get a better understanding about this time that we're spending recording this stuff. Is anybody actually listening to that? And Buzzsprout Buzz says yes. Buzz, yeah, Buzzsprout makes that easy. So what's the deal that we've managed to get for for our listeners if they want to explore the world of creating their own podcast on Buzzsprout. Yeah, if you follow the link in our show notes, you can get set up on Buzzsprout. And because you follow that link, we get a little bit of support from that. But then we're also supporting you as well because we don't think of you as competition at all in this little, we say welcome to the podcast family. So if you are interested in uh, starting your own podcast, but we think Buzzsprout is a great place to start. So follow that link in the show notes and uh, they will walk you through setting up the process. Like Dad said, it was a super easy setup, uh, tons of tutorials and tons of uh, step-by-step instructions as we got started because we didn't know really a lot <laughs> when we got the podcast started. So Buzzsprout was a, was a big help for, the, for us. Good deal. We hope you check it out. Thanks. 
Welcome back to A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast. Alexis here, and like I mentioned before the break, we're taking a trip not that far back in history, but we're going across the pond. We're going over to Europe to talk about the end of World War II and what brought about the end of World War II. One of those things being the cracking of the Enigma Code. Uh, so that was, for those of you that are not familiar with the Enigma Code, that was the coded classification system, uh, communication system for the German uh, military in World War II. So that is the system they used to encode and uh, scramble all of their communications to make sure that their movements and uh, decisions were not intercepted by Allied hands. But of course, that was cracked. Um, so we're going to be talking about what if that hadn't happened? How would that have affected the war? So all of this information was uh, declassified in 1974. Uh, it was actually the Brits that ultimately uh, did declassify this information with a little bit of help from the Poles. Uh, the Polish army was actually uh, the people that really cracked Enigma first. So I was actually talking to my dad a little bit off podcast before I started recording. And, you know, we, we were kind of imagining, you know, there was probably this meeting where the Poles and the Brits got together like, look, here's what we know. Let, let me tell you what we found out and what we know, and you can add it to what you know, and then we'll figure this out. But the British, uh, the British intelligence is credited uh, with uh, cracking Enigma and for the developments that ultimately led to the end of World War II. You might have heard Madison in the background. She is not happy with some weather in the area uh, that's going on right now. So anything you might hear in the background from our lovely podcast ma mascot, Madison, uh, it's it's a reaction to the weather that's going on outside. She's not happy right now. Um, but like I said, let's talk about the Enigma Code. So I don't think it's fair to say that if Enigma hadn't been broken, Germany, Germany would have lost the war. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's really reasonable. I think um, Hitler wasn't the greatest uh, military general, military commander. Um, I think he made some some pretty big fumbles and some pretty big blunders. Um, so I don't think just Enigma being unbroken would have ultimately led to a German victory and an Axis victory in World War II. But I definitely think if Enigma hadn't been broken, it would have prolonged the war. It would have extended the war by at least a few months, if not a couple of years. So really, we're going to focus on what that would have done to the timeline of history with the different countries that were involved in the war. We're not going to talk about all the countries that were involved because, of course, it was a world war. Um, and there were obviously several countries that were uh, taken over by Germany and things like that. But we're really going to talk about the, the main countries that were involved in the fighting, the Axis powers and the Allied powers, um, and kind of the ramifications of what extending the timeline a couple months and then a few years would have done uh, to those countries. So the biggest difference uh, would probably be the Battle of the Atlantic, which is the longest longest offensive uh, in the war. So it's an offensive strategy with the Allied forces. But of course, before we really talk about the what did, we kind of have to go through that what if. Uh, that is the basis of everything we do here on A Fork in Time. So let's kind of just hit the highlights of World War II 
We know, of course, World War II really started in Europe in 1939. That is when Hitler invades uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, invades uh, Belgium, and some other countries, ultimately leading to Britain declaring war on Germany on September 3rd of 1939 uh, in retaliation and in response to Hitler invading uh, those countries, Belgium, uh, and some others as well. Um, so that was kind of the beginning point, was 1939. Uh, flashing forward a little bit, we have Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor, Pearl, Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. That was December 7th of 1941. That is really when the U.S. enters the war in a major capacity. The U.S., and we'll get into this a little bit as we kind of go through the what did, or the what if, excuse me. Um, the U.S. was involved in the war starting in 1939 and up through December of 1941 when the attack on Pearl Harbor happened, but it was mainly as a support and as a aid rendering nation. Um, one of the things that we're really heavily involved in was the Lend-Lease uh, and the cash and carry policy where we were supplying, and I say we, the United States, since that's where I'm from, um, but it was involved in supplying weapons, planes, so machinery and mechanisms for the world, but also supplying economic aid. But they definitely had a cash and carry policy of, we'll give you these things, but you have to come and get them, you have to pay cash for them, and you have to take them back to Europe yourself. We kind of have this, we're supporting you, but it's his hands-off um, mentality until that all kind of changes on December 7, 1941, when we're attacked at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and then we enter the war in a more personal capacity. Then the next kind of major event is D-Day, which is June 6th, 1944, um, following D-Day, uh, which is when the uh, Allied forces land in Normandy on the coast of France. Um, then they push on into Paris, uh, eventually push on into Berlin, and ultimately Germany surrenders on May 8th of 1945. Uh, going a little bit further, we have the dropping of the atomic bombs uh, on August 6th at Hiroshima in Japan, and then on August 9th in Nagasaki, um, and then Japan finally surrenders on August 15th of 1945. So that's, in a nutshell, World War II. Obviously, there are several battles uh, that we don't get, in, don't get uh, into too deeply there, uh, and several things uh, that happened in those six years between 1939 and 1945, but those are just kind of the high points, or the, the big picture of World War II. So let's kind of get into the what if now. So as I mentioned, um, not going to conjecture that Germany is going to going to win the war. I don't think that is reasonable. I don't think that's logical. I don't think that's realistic. Um, but I do think that we would have extended the timeline by at least a couple of months, probably as much as a couple of years. Most realistically, I would see uh, World War II ending if Enigma is not broken. I see an World War II ending about 1947. So as we go through a little bit, we're going to talk about what just shifting from August or, or, or June, depending on, or, or May, May 8th or August 15th, depending on which 
realm of the war you're talking about. That's another thing uh, we probably need to talk about. The, the fact that these things kind of intersect each other. So if you have the war in Europe extending, that obviously means the war in the Eastern Theater in Japan and Asia is extending as well. So let's get into that a little bit. So if Britain had not received enough supplies, one of the things I saw in my research that they probably wouldn't have been able to remain in the war. Again, I don't think this is logical or reasonable or really realistic. Um, yes, Britain did lose some supplies with ship sinking and bombings and things like that, but they didn't lose the amount of supplies that would have rendered them incapacitated. Um, the amount of supplies that they needed was much less um, or much was not equal uh, to the amount of supplies that were lost. So I don't think you would have taken Britain completely out of the war. You definitely would have uh, made it much more difficult uh, for Britain. But keep in mind that we still have the U.S. rendering aid. Uh, we still have several other countries that are rendering aid to Britain. Um, so I don't think Britain would have been completely taken out of the war had Enigma not been broken and had they had their supplies constantly bombarded because they just weren't using enough materials to make that a feasible suggestion. But with the code broken, they were able to divert convoys away from those wolf packs of U-boats. So what, what the Germans would do is they would have these groups of U-boats that would travel together as a pack and would um, harangue the uh, the British ships that were carrying supplies, carrying soldiers, um, carrying things like that. So with the code broken, they were obviously able to go around um, those U-boat convoys and those U-boat uh, wolf packs that were... Um, that were out in the war in the Atlantic, which is why this is called the the Battle of the Atlantic. It's the offensive. Um, it's kind of you know I have the, I have the game Battleship in my head. It's like okay, we see them over there, so let's go this way. Let's go the long way. You know, it might take a little bit longer, but we know it's safe. And the breaking the, of the Enigma Code was one of the things that allowed them to do that. It also allowed the Allies to not only divert themselves away from the Germans, but to also attack the Germans because they knew where the Germans were. So not only are they able, the Allies are able to protect their supplies, they're also able to hamper the effort for the Axis powers, the Germans, uh, the Japanese, um, because they're able to destroy their supply lines because they, they know where their boats are. Um, as I was doing my research, I had a scene from the Imitation Game which is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I do suggest it. But once they break Enigma, um, once they break the codes and they're able to determine where these movements are and where the things are, they have to make some really strategic decisions because they don't want the Germans to understand that they've broken the code because obviously that means the Germans are going to change the code. This does actually happen. Uh, once the Germans figure out that they break Enigma, uh, they actually use another... Um, a system called Triton, which again uh, has to be rebroken, and it actually takes until 1943 uh, for Triton to be broken. Everybody thinks of Enigma. I had actually never really heard of Triton, and again, until I started doing some research. But, you know, I'm thinking of that scene in the Imitation Game, specifically where, you know, they've broken the code and they realize that these 
German boats are on the way to attack a British ship, and they basically have to decide to let it happen. Because if they suddenly move that ship away, the only way they're going to know this attack is happening is if they've broken Enigma. So, it's this weird thing of we have to let this happen, even though we know it's going to happen, we have to let this happen because we can't let the Germans know that we have broken Enigma. We've just got to, we've got to pick our battles. Pun intended, exactly what it means. We've got to pick our battles and we've got to save what we can save and we've got to systematically and, you know, decide uh, what we want destroyed and what we can afford to be destroyed so that our cover doesn't essentially get blown. I mentioned that, you know, cash and carry cash and carry policy. Obviously, that's a problem if you have a boat coming to get supplies coming from Britain, having to come to America, and then they're having to go back to Britain. Uh, if we've got U-boats trolling all over the Atlantic Ocean, um, that's obviously a problem. Those boats can be sunk with those supplies on them. Um, so that's a big problem. Really, one of the impetus, impetuses for um, why Enigma needs to be broken. We need to know where those U-boats are so that we can get our supplies and our troops back safely across the Atlantic um, to Europe so that they can continue fighting and beat back the German advances. Also, this increased number of U-boats. If we don't know where the U-boats are, we can't destroy them. This increased number of U-boats would have made getting supplies over to the Soviet Union a lot more difficult. Keep in mind, the Soviet Union at this point is actually on the ally side. I always have to remind myself of that. I always think, because immediately after the, uh, immediately after World War II in my head is the Cold War, where it's the U.S. against the Soviet Union. But during World War II, the Soviet Union was actually allied to Britain and the United States. So if we have this in these increased numbers of U-boats, because we can't destroy the U-boats, not only is it causing problems in the Atlantic, but once the supplies get across the Atlantic to Europe, now we've got to get them to the Soviet Union. Um, and then also doing things in the Mediterranean um, and even down into Africa to get things into the, into the Soviet Union. That becomes a problem. So again, Enigma is this big boon uh, in, the European, in the British and the American um, system to really break up those communications with those U-boats really kind of break a supply line, break a supply chain in the German advances so they can kind of make advances um, to defeat the Germans and push them back. So in May of 1941, Enigma is cracked. I mentioned that once the Germans figured out that we'd cracked Enigma, uh, they switched to that other system. So that was in uh, February of 1942. They switched to Triton. Um... And in October of 1942, the key to Triton is found, but it takes until early 1943 for Triton to actually be found. So we had a little bit of success. We cracked Enigma, but that wasn't the end of the story. We had to crack Titan, and finally it was cracked in early 1943. So again, if we don't crack Enigma, we use the knowledge we had with Enigma to crack Triton. So if we don't crack Enigma, do we crack Triton? And so pushing back the war, if we're already in early 1943 when Triton is cracked and that really enables us to get in to uh, disrupt those U-boat uh, movements, disrupt the troop movements for the Germans uh, and, and the Japanese and their allies. Um, so if we're not able to do that until 1944, 
possibly into 1945. What does that do? What is the significance of delaying the war just by a few months? It's really easy to say like, oh, well, obviously Germany wouldn't have won the war. It's fine. Things would have been great. But what does that shift in the timeline do? That's what I find super interesting is just shifting things by a few months, a few years. What does that do to the bigger ripples? You know, it's that it's that dropping a rock in a pond thing of you drop it, but you drop it a little bit later, drop it a little bit differently. How do those ripples come out from that rock and how do they affect bigger things? It was estimated as I was doing my research one year of fighting is estimated to have cost 7 million lives. Now, again, that's 7 million across all theaters, across all countries. So that includes Japan, that includes Britain, that includes um, Germany, that includes the United States, that includes Canada, that includes all of the different countries that were involved in fighting in World War II. But 7 million people, one year. So if we're talking about, as I mentioned earlier, I think the most logical um, solution is pushing the war back until the end of the war back to 1947. If we're talking about extending from 1945 to 1947, that's 14, 14 million lives that were possibly saved by the cracking of Enigma, subsequently Triton. 14 million lives are saved just by shortening the war and cracking that code. Um... As I mentioned, we're extending the timeline. So the Normandy invasion gets pushed back to 1945. As I mentioned in the real timeline, that includes uh, June 6th, 1944. Um, so if we're pushing that back, let's say a year. So let's say June 6th, 1945. What does that do? I think most realistically, that allows Hitler to build up his defenses. Um, if you've seen videos of the D-Day invasion and kind of if you know what what the Normandy invasion was. Uh, of course, they land in Normandy, then they push forward into Paris eventually, and then they push on forward eventually into Berlin, which is the impetus for ending the war as the Allies have, have made it into Germany, have made it into Berlin. Um, so if we're pushing that back, what does that do? I think that Hitler would have had time to build up his defenses even more, so... Maybe as a he might have even had nothing on the beaches of Normandy. There were obviously uh, German troops that were stationed in Normandy, um, and you see you've obvious you might have seen that footage of you know the the soldiers landing on the beach and getting kind of attacked immediately by by these forces that were on the beach waiting for them. Um, but is it possible that there was nobody on the beach in Germany may, or in France? Maybe he had pulled all of his resources, so maybe the Allies thought they were okay. And then there was this massive influx of fighting getting from Normandy all the way into Paris. Maybe we delay that push from Normandy to Paris. It's, it's a pretty quick push. You're talking about um, May or June of 1944. And then I'm actually going to look up right now Alice, Allies arriving in Paris. I have, of course, May 8th, 1945 in my head, but that's, of course, um, when Germany surrenders. So the Allied troops actually roll into Paris on August 25th of 1944. So a little bit over a month 
from June of 1944 to August of 1944, it's, I think it's not at all unlikely. In fact, I think it's very, very likely that, um, you have these, this buildup of troops that are between Normandy and Paris. So it takes much longer to push into Paris and subsequently much longer to push into Berlin eventually and Germany eventually. Um, so that dramatically delays, um, the end of the war because these troops just can't make it from Normandy to Paris and eventually Berlin because they're fighting within France and then within Germany to get there. I'm not going to follow the path. I, in my research, I, I saw this little bit of dropping a nuclear weapon on Berlin. We mentioned we dropped nuclear weapons on Japan, on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Not going to follow that path about dropping a nuclear weapon on Berlin. But we do know that Berlin was and Germany was developing some of these rockets and some of these weapons. So is it possible that they were dropping these bombs on London, eventually on maybe Washington, D.C., on New York City? on other country, other cities in the United States. You know, immediately when I said New York City, I'm thinking of 9-11. And the fact that, yes, it might not have been the political center of the country, but it was a cultural center of the country. So what would that have done if the Germans had developed a bomb that was capable of reaching New York, reaching Washington, D.C., and hampering our efforts from across the Atlantic? Um, because we're we don't have enigma cracked. We don't have the resources available to break these, break these supply lines that they're using to, to weaponize themselves. So the war ends in 1947 in my, uh, my new timeline. Let's, let's follow the same, same path. So let's say it's May 8th, 1947. We're just literally extending the war by two years. We're going from 1945 to 1947. Let's talk about some of the major events that were happening in those major players uh, that were involved in World War II. Let's talk about those major events that were occurring in 1947 and how delaying the war end would have affected those things. So let's, of course, talk about Germany first. Um, of course, we know that after, um, after the war, Germany is divided into East and West Germany. Um, we've got the Soviets that are in control of East Germany. We've got West Germany, which is um, controlled by the what are now the Allies uh, in my, you know, 2021 uh, thinking. So, of course, we've got Germ we've got Britain and the United States. Um, East and West Germany were actually founded in 1949. And then you'll see a previous uh, episode we did on this. It. We had the Berlin Wall that was constructed, and that eventually fell in 1990, um, or 1989. Now I'm questioning myself, even though we've done a uh, podcast topic on it. But uh, the Berlin Wall actually fell. Okay, 1989. I was I was off by a little bit. 1989, August, or I'm sorry, November of 1989. Alexis, you know your dates. Uh, November of 1989, the Berlin Wall falls. Berlin Wall falls. Um, but just pushing that back. So say that we don't end the war until 1947. Then, of course, we have to do treaties and we have to get to a point that we can found East and West Germany. 
So is that not founded until the mid-50s? Is it possible that the Berlin Wall doesn't get torn down until the mid-90s? That's weird to think about since I was actually born in 91. So I was born just after uh, the Berlin Wall falls. But is it, you know, am I living in a world where I'm four when the Berlin Wall falls down? And what does that do to, to Germany now? Of course, now I'm thinking of you know, we have the German German Chancellor, we have Angela Merkel is the German Chancellor now, but how does post-war Germany look if we're just pushing back East and West Germany forming? Then, of course, we have, you know, the German, we have the, the Berlin airlift, we have the blockades, we have the Berlin Wall, all of those things that kind of are built into the German character of today how does that look if we're shifting that timeline forward just a little bit? You know, again, having the Berlin Berlin Wall fall in 1994, 1995, what does Germany look like in 2021? Having that just a little bit different of a, of a change to their national history. I definitely think not as unified. Um... I think that's that's a fair assumption, but it's it's just interesting to me. Uh, next, let's talk about Italy. So Italy um, signs, and of course, Italy was also on the side of the Germans. It was on the Axis side. Of course, we had Benito Mussolini, who was the uh, fascist leader of Germany during the war. Um, the Treaty of Peace was actually signed in real timeline in 1947, in that treaty, several territories were ceded from Italy, were taken from Italy. Parts of Greece uh, were ceded uh, back to Greece uh, from Italy. Um, but also countries like Libya, uh, Etria, and Somaliland in, um, in Africa, almost said Asia, in Africa uh, were given um, their independence as well. So... Again, pushing that forward, Ethiopia hasn't been established for as long as it has. Etria hasn't been established for long, as long as it has. Parts of Greece haven't been um, parts of Greece uh, for as long as it has. So it's just just that little bit, a little bit of a shift and a little bit of a ripple. You know, when I was thinking about this, Ethiopia didn't even cross my mind until it was like, oh yeah, that was an Italian colony. They got taken away from Italy and given its independence, um, and that would not have happened especially wouldn't have happened if Italy had won because Italy was on the side of the Germans. So if Germany had won by extension, Italy wins. So it doesn't have that territory ceded from it. Is it possible that Ethiopia is still a colony of Germany to this day? Don't think so, but definitely would have been a lot longer of a time that it was a colony of Italy and the ramifications of that. Also, the Cold War plays a really big role in Italian politics. Um, Italy was pretty he pretty heavily uh, reliant on the U.S. for aid uh, following the war. And U.S. made it pretty clear to Italy that they did not want a fascist or communist government in power in Italy. So in the elections um, that were taking place in the, uh, in the aftermath of World War II... It was made very clear to Italy. And of course, we have these rising tensions with Russia, who's becoming a communist country. Um, so that plays a major role in Italian politics 
just because they are so reliant on that aid from the U.S. following World War II. Uh, let's move on to Japan. We're just going through a quick overview. I'm sure. I'm sure you have more uh, kind of thoughts on um, what these countries would have faced after World War II. Kind of more specific examples, and that's kind of what I'm going for with this podcast topic. Um, I'd like to hear your specific examples, or if you don't agree, or if you think like you didn't think about this, I want to hear about it. I think it could be another topic because I think this is again, it's one of those things. It's like you know when you think about it, it's like on the surface, it's like oh you know, wouldn't have changed much. But really just shifting that timeline, it's it's not always about changing an outcome. It's just about shifting an outcome and what that does to the timeline and to the ripples of history. So let's talk about Japan a little bit. Um, following, following the war, Japan has a post-war constitution that grants universal suffrage. It strips the power away from the emperor. The emperor basically becomes a figurehead. Uh, it establishes a Bill of Rights. It establish it abolishes uh, the peerage system. So Japan really starts to become a lot more democratic, um, so to speak, in the aftermath of World War II. So I definitely think that wouldn't have happened um, because, again, much like Germany, if you have Japan, if you have, or much like Italy, excuse me, if you have Germany winning the war by extension. You have Japan winning the war. Um, you know, you wouldn't have had those two cities destroyed by the atomic bomb, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, so I think there would have been this communist fascist rising or continuation in Japan that did not exist post-World War II simply because um, Japan was on the losing side. So these these good things, this universal suffrage, um, these Bill of Rights, come out of World War II, even though it was a devastating thing that happened to the country, these two cities destroyed by the atomic bomb, um, and you know, they were on the losing side, but, but these do thing these two, these good things do ultimately come out of of the end of World War II in Japan. In the U.S., I really was just struck as I was doing my research. So many things in pop culture happen uh, following uh, the end of um, the end of the war. Specifically in 1947, you know, as I was doing research, it was things like it was a lot of things about the Tony Awards that year, the Emmy Awards that year, the the Oscar Awards that year, lots of things about Jackie Robinson, lots of things about, um, you know, it was just this, this return to life that, you know, just happened in World War, after World War II in, in the U.S. So those things getting delayed and bigger, um, after World War II and all the soldiers come back, you know, you have the rise of the baby boomer population. So, if you're extending World War II by a couple years, if we're ending in 1947 instead of 1945, there's hundreds of thousands of babies that aren't born as part of the baby boomer population, or they're not born in the years they're born. They're not born in 1940, 1946, really 1947. Um, by the time they're they're 
parents get back uh, to the United States. And then, of course, we have to wait for nine months for a baby to be born. Um, but yeah, just shifting that from 1945 to 1947, how many thousands of babies don't exist because there's no or there's a delay in the baby boomer population. I mean, we still call them the baby boomers because that's what happened. Um, so that's, again, it's almost like thinking of the amount of life, lives lost, um, ex, you know, by extending the Because there wasn't the impetus for the baby boomers to happen because we were still fighting a war in 1946 and possibly early 1947 and definitely in 1945. So that's just another kind of, it's a small thing to think about, but when you think about it, it's really a big thing to think about just the amount of lives that would have, wouldn't have existed or would have existed in a different way if just Enigma hadn't been broken and the war got extended. Uh, let's talk about the Soviet Union a little bit. Of course, the biggest thing is the delay of the start of the Cold War. Because obviously, if we're still fighting World War II, we're technically still allies with uh Soviet Union, what becomes Russia today. Um, so if we're not, if we're still fighting World War II, there's no reason for us to start fighting, and I'm using fighting in air quotes because, of course, it was a Cold War. It was a war of ideology. But that doesn't start immediately. And so I'm thinking immediately of Sputnik. In 1947, we are just 10 years away from Sputnik. Well, if we don't end the war until 1947, does Russia, Soviet Union at the time, have the resources it needs to put the effort into Sputnik and does that launch in 1947, which, going back to the United States, Sputnik is one of the things that really is the impetus for us with the space race ultimately come, culminate, culminating in landing on the moon in 1969. So are we not landing on the moon until mid-1970s, maybe 1972, 73? What does that do to space exploration? Um... So it's, again, it's just this little pushing it back a few months, possibly a few years. What does that do to technological advances? Um, I'm thinking of another TV show, uh, Timeless, uh, and they do an episode where there's actually a, he works for the Nazis, he develops the rockets, uh, but after the war, he comes to America and helps jumpstart our space program so if he's still busy helping the nazis uh with uh their rocket program obviously he's not available to come over to america help us launch our uh rocket program our space program that delays us so again it's just this cultural reference of we're, we're just delaying things we're delaying scientific discovery we're delaying scientific advancement because we're wrapped up and still fighting this war two years after it ends in the real timeline all because we can't break a cipher essentially a code essentially i saved the my if you've listened to the podcast before you know my favorite country is great britain i saved that for last 
1947, that's actually the year that the future Elizabeth II, uh, Princess Elizabeth at the time, that's actually the year she gets married uh, to Prince Philip, Philip Mountbatten, uh, who was actually a naval commander. He was in the he was in the Royal Navy. I almost said U.S. Navy, but he was in the Royal Navy um, in World War II. So again, we're pushing it back. We're still fighting the war in 1945, 1946, possibly into 1947. Don't think Philip was going to be available in 1947 if he's still fighting in World War II to be able to get married to Princess Elizabeth. So that gets delayed. Also, um, Elizabeth has a child very quickly after her marriage, 1948, Prince Charles. Uh, that obviously doesn't happen immediately. And then in 1952, her father dies and she becomes Elizabeth II. I think we mentioned this again on a previous podcast talking about Edward VIII. One of the things that I think accelerates the timeline of George VI reign and eventual death is the abdication of his brother. But I think another thing that influence, influences and maybe puts a little bit of stress on him is the fact that three years after he becomes king, not even three years, he becomes king in December of 1936. In September of 1939, he's having to declare war. And not only is he having to declare war, he's having to declare war on cousins. Um, I definitely think that would have made a difference and an impact on him. So are we by pushing the war back are we you know does he die in 1949 does he die in 1948 does queen elizabeth become queen at she was 25 when she became does she become queen at 22 does she become queen unmarried without children we talked about in that episode on edward the eighth she is you know, she's settled, she's married, she has a couple kids by the time she becomes queen. If she's becoming queen as an unmarried, single, unattached, not mother queen, what does that look like? And especially having to deal with the fact that, you know, not only was her father having to deal with, he had a stutter, his brother abdicated, he had a de- but he had to declare war on cousins, and that that subsequently kills him, the stress of all those things. So that's just, an, again, it's an interesting shift to the timeline and a possible bigger consequence that isn't necessarily firstly thought of. The last thing is kind of a, it kind of starts in Britain, but it kind of um, pushes itself outward and is now global, the development of computers. Again, mentioned the imitation game before, uh, the main, main character in that is Alan Turing, who, of course, is known as the father of computers. You know, again, I saw something else. It's like, oh, well, the computer wouldn't exist. And I don't think that's that's a thing. Um, first of all, where he was working was Bletchley Park. That was in England at the time. That was where they were cracking the codes. And eventually they cracked Enigma. They cracked Titan. Um, but there were other codes that were having to happen. Obviously, there was Enigma and Titan, so there were other codes. Bletchley would have still existed, and I think the technology that becomes the modern computer would have still happened, um, and probably would have still happened relatively close to the same timeline. So I don't think it's fair to say that if Enigma had never been cracked, um, 
there would have never been a computer. They were still doing the work to crack Enigma and to crack the other codes. Um, I mentioned, a, I think I mentioned this off podcast. Uh, Enigma was big because it was the naval code. So there, there were other codes with land movements and things like that ha- that had been cracked. Enigma was the big one because Enigma was kind of what was in charge of the U-boats and the movements within the Battle of the Atlantic, the, that biggest offensive. Um, so again, I don't think it's it's fair to say there wouldn't have been a computer uh, had there been no cracking of Enigma. But I definitely think that was a big, big step. So again, it's it's just delaying delaying things again. If we're having to take longer to crack those codes, we're having to take longer to develop that technology. It's definitely not as advanced as it is today. Um, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm talking on, you know, I'm, I have a headset, I'm talking to a laptop, I have a phone next to me that I think has, you know, more power in it than maybe the first rocket that was launched or the first satellite that was launched. Um, but all of those developments can be traced back to the beginnings of Enigma and cracking Enigma and previous to that with other code-breaking systems and other um, systems like that. So again, it's just this interesting thing to think about. You know, wouldn't it change the ultimate outcome of the war? Germany still would have lost the war. But what does that shift of a couple months up to a couple years, ending the war in 1947 instead of 1945. What does that make the world look like today? So I hope this was a fun little jaunt um, down this little fork of history. Um, if, Like I said earlier, if there is something that I didn't think about, or there's something that you don't agree with me on, that's why we have our social medias. That's why we have our forums. So you can communicate with us. And we do actually respond back to you. So leave us a comment on our Facebook page when we post the episode. Leave us a comment. Comment on the forum on the website, which is aforkintimepodcast.com. I'm hosting the show, so I'm going to remember to tell you that A on the front of it and podcasts on the back of it are important to get you to the right place. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Also, follow us on social media. We are on Facebook. We're on Pinterest. We're on Instagram. And we are on Twitter. I almost said LinkedIn. That is not right. We are on Twitter. Um, so please follow us. That's also a great way to tell other people about the show. Also, I want to mention, because we're gearing up to actually record uh, the first episode in a couple, in about a week or so, of our second podcast. We're growing our podcast empire here at A Fork in Time. Our second podcast is The Room Where It Happened. Um, so you can actually find the links for A Room Where It Happened from aforkintimepodcast.com or those social media channels as well. So we hope you enjoy that new venture that we're going on. You're going to hear some familiar voices and uh, if, you're, if you go to the website, see some familiar faces that are associated with A Room Where It Happened uh, or The Room Where It Happened. But we would love for you to get involved as well. It's not too late to get involved. You'll actually see on the website, we have a feedback form. So if you'd like to get involved with a room where it happened, or even a fork in time, drop us a line. Uh, We'd love to have you get involved. And you can get involved on all levels. If you want to do research, if you want to actually be on a podcast and have your voice out there, that is great too. If you want to do social media, if you want to do producing, Anything you want to do, you can let us know. There's a space in the form for that. And like I said, we would love to have you. So 
Again, I want to thank you for enjoying joining me, enjoying me, <laughs> joining me on this episode of A Fork in Time. I apologize. I'm a little rusty. It's been a while. <laughs> you might have heard a couple episodes. Going to get back into the swing of things, but things just kind of keep life just kind of keeps throwing things at me. But it's okay. I've really enjoyed this journey on A Fork in Time, so I'm really looking forward to getting back into podcasting more regularly, uh, not just with A Fork in Time, but also where the ro- with the room where it happened as well, and getting to talk to you a little bit more and interacting with you a little bit more. So I'm going to close out the show here. I'm going to close out the show like we always do by saying, if you encounter A Fork in Time, I hope you take it. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Learn more and provide feedback by visiting our website at www.aforkintimepodcast.com. Connect to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash aforkintime or follow us on Twitter at A-F-I-T podcast. If you want to support the show financially, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash aforkintime. We hope you will join us next time.